In a moment, we're going to dive into uh, today's scripture passage in 1 John. But before we do that, I want to provide a simple introduction that I hope will kind of frame this for us this morning. John's going to be talking about the fact that there were false prophets, false teachers active within the Christian community who were trying to deceive true believers and draw them away from the simplicity of the gospel, the the purity of their faith in Jesus Christ. It was true in the first century, and it's still true today. Jesus said that in the last days there will be many who will fall away from the faith. And if you happen to have your ear to the ground with regard to current trends and developments within at least American Christianity, one of the buzzwords you may have heard is deconstruction. Deconstruction is the the currently fashionable term for falling away from the faith. And I hear this expression used most often for people who have been in some kind of Christian ministry, some of them pastors, um, some of them Christian musicians, parachurch workers, uh, who have experienced a crisis of faith and are concluding that they no longer believe in Jesus. So they're deconstructing their faith and turning to some other spiritual persuasions, or not at all. If you type the phrase deconstruction of faith into the search bar in YouTube, you'll find a number of videos in which these men and women describe the reasons that they're deconstructing their Christian faith. And I took some time this week to watch a number of those I'll just call them testimonials. The the common thread I found in the experience of many of them was some kind of disappointment with God. Something they had hoped for in their lives didn't turn out the way they had hoped. Something that they had believed was true because someone else had told them it was true didn't turn out to be true at all. Uh, Something they had persuaded themselves that God would do for them or for others didn't come to pass. But in nearly every case, the thing that they were hoping for or believing in had nothing to do with biblical Christianity. They were hoping for something God had not promised or believing in something that God didn't actually say. Where am I going with this? Just lean in here for a moment. There are many who profess to believe in Jesus who really really don't. Would you agree with that? Um, What they are believing in or believing for is something that they think that Jesus can give them. Their faith isn't actually in Jesus. Instead, their faith is actually in a desired outcome. When we say, I'm in believing, I'm believing Jesus for this, we fill in the blank. We have to walk very carefully through that. We have to ask whether what we're believing him for is something he has actually promised. Otherwise, it could very well be that what we are naively resting our hope and trust in is an outcome not in the person whom we confess as our King and our Lord. See, to trust in Jesus is to trust in Jesus. 
not in what we hope beyond hope that he will give to us. He is the Lord. Whatever may happen in our lives, he is still the Lord. He's still on the throne. He's faithful to his promises, but but we can't ever allow ourselves to rest our expectations, our hope, our faith in anything beyond what he has promised. When things are going our way, he's the Lord. When things are going in another direction, he's still the Lord. And in fact, uh, the very posture of acknowledging Jesus as Lord is giving him full control of our lives, giving him permission to do what he will with us, through us, so that whatever comfort and gain he allows us to experience or whatever pain and loss he allows into our lives, we are able to say he is Lord and we're able to say it is well with my soul. The writer of Hebrews wrote these essential words in chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let's get into our text in 1 John. Will you please stand with me and let's read these 10 verses aloud together. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, Abide in him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, in that very first verse, verse 18, John wants us to make sure that we know the times. That we know the times. He writes, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. What exactly was John saying when he declared twice in one verse that it is the last hour? Specifically this, I think, that in the arrival of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the kingdom 
had come. In fact, the first words of Jesus as he began his public ministry were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or essentially the kingdom of God is now here. So that in the arrival of Jesus in the flesh, the the kingdom had come. The old era has come to an end, a new had begun. He's already declared in verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And in verse 17, he said, the world's, the world is passing away along with its desires. There's a transition happening. Something new has come into the picture. What John was not saying, either literally or figuratively, is that they would definitely be gone in 60 minutes. That's not what he means by the last hour. Or for that matter, 60 days, 60 years, or 600 years, or or 6,000 years. Jesus himself had been very clear. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. On one of those videos I mentioned earlier, the host was itemizing reasons why many young people today are just deconstructing their faith and leaving the church. One of the items on that list that just stood out to me was what she called end times hype. End times hype. By that she meant that a lot of Christians having heard and and accepted hyped up promises about the imminent return of Jesus that proved to be false find one more reason to conclude that what they are being taught lacks credibility and integrity. We really need to be careful about what we teach about the last days or anything else for that matter so that we are only saying what the Bible says, nothing more and nothing less. Jesus also taught his disciples that a period of tribulation and apostasy would precede the end, including the rise of false Christs and false prophets whose aim was to deceive both the church and the world. In fact, in Matthew 24, it's written that as he, that is Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So what John is doing here, I think, is making a theological statement based on what he and the other apostles had heard from Jesus. The the first appearing of Christ initiated what the Bible calls the last days. And the coming of many antichrists, as as John surveyed the contemporary scene of his day, indicated to him that it was the last hour. The forces of evil were already rallying. The powers of darkness were closing ranks. And the stage was now set for the end so that nothing stood in the way of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. 
Now, some might say, well, if John said it's the final hour, shouldn't Jesus have come by now? And the Apostle Peter answers that question. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the eternal God who exists above and outside of time isn't bound by our human schedules, is he? There are a lot of teachers that have, even in our day, who have said, well, Jesus is coming on this day. And have been sadly disappointed when they woke up the next morning in the same bed, in the same place. See, God has a redemptive purpose in what seems to us to be only delay. Now, I hear Christians say, well, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But even though 2,000 years have passed since John said it is the last hour, we're still living in the final hour. We're still living in the hour of final opposition to Christ. And there is more spiritual deception at work in the world than ever before. And that's why, secondly, John wants us to know the threat. To know the threat. Go back with me to 1 John 2, 18 again. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And just as he used the phrase last hour twice in that verse, he uses the word antichrist twice in that verse. You might be saying right now, well, I thought there was just one antichrist. Do you mean to tell me that there are many? And and here's something you need to know and understand, that the Bible scholars borrowed the title antichrist from John and attached it to an end times false messiah that the Bible says will come, who will seek and will achieve world domination. Although very briefly, because Jesus is going to come a second time and put an end to his rule. But the intent of the Antichrist will be to destroy Israel, and to deceive or destroy all who believe in and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the word Antichrist only shows up in John's letters and nowhere else in the New Testament. But that one person is referred to in Daniel 9.26 as the prince who is to come, who will set up the abomination of desolation. We don't know exactly what that is, but it will be set up in the newly constructed temple in Jerusalem in the last days. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, calls him the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. And then in Revelation 13, 19, and 20, he's referred to as the beast. And along with another person who's called the false prophet, he will finally be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. Interestingly, none of the biblical writers ever actually refer to him as the Antichrist, although he fully fits that definition. 
But John is saying here that the Antichrist with a capital A will be and already has been preceded by a bunch of Antichrists with a lowercase a. So who or what is an Antichrist? Chad Moore, who's the pastor of Sun Valley Community Church, which is our sister church in Gilbert, Arizona, offers this very simple definition. I like it a lot. An antichrist is anyone or anything that tries to deceive you and me to keep us from believing that Jesus is legitimate. I love that. So an antichrist is anyone who sets out to deceive you into believing that Jesus is not who he claimed to be and therefore could could not have accomplished what John and the rest of the New Testament writers claimed that he accomplished through his death and resurrection. And notice John's statement in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The word antichrist means literally against Christ. An antichrist is an adversary. It's, a, it's an opponent to Jesus Christ, a rival to God's Son, our only Savior. And Jesus also referred to them in Matthew 24, 24 as false Christs and false prophets who will appear. They'll perform great signs and wonders with the goal of deceiving everyone, and especially those who have trusted in Christ or who will yet trust in Christ. In chapter 4, John adds, Beloved, do not, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, to see whether they are from God, for many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now let's get a look at the rest of what John wants to tell us about these antichrists. Check out verse 19 of chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain but they all are not of us. So notice, first of all, that these antichrists had been in the church. They had been within the community of believers. At some point, they professed some level of personal faith. They had been baptized. They may actually have become church leaders, probably did, became influential people within the Christian community. The apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Likewise, the apostle Peter said, there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then Jude warned Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So they were in the church, but they were not genuine believers. How do we know that? John says that they were not of us. They were with us. They were among us. But they were not of us. And he offers us evidence of that claim, the reality that they went out from us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. See, by, by leaving the church, they, they outed themselves, as it were, as not being genuine followers of Jesus, not being genuine believers in him. And one of the key doctrines that emerged from the Protestant Reformation is what became known as the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. And that doctrine says that those who are God's holy ones, those who are genuine Christians who have caught the real disease, who have in fact experienced um, the rebirth of the Spirit through personal faith in Christ, will in fact persevere in that faith until the very end of their lives or until Jesus comes. And that's not at all to say that they won't have doubts or struggles along the way, that they'll blow it, that they'll sin, but that they'll nevertheless continue to profess faith in Jesus Christ, continue to grow in him, come what may. They'll never let go of him because he never lets go of them. John wants us to know and understand that that one of the external evidences of that perseverance is remaining in vital fellowship within a local church, a, a local gathering of believers, warts and all. And that's not to say that every single member of any given church is a genuine Christian. Neither is it to say that church attendance makes you a Christian. In fact, frequenting McDonald's won't make you a Big Mac, will it? Though over time it may make you look like one or or even smell like one. What John is saying, I think, is that it's likely that those who aren't actually believers will at some point drop out of vital fellowship. Now, that's different than just going from one believing church to another believing church. That's that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about completely dropping out of vital Christian fellowship. They'll lose interest. You've seen it. I've seen it. They'll lose interest. They'll become increasingly sporadic in their attendance. They'll move out of positions of responsible service. They'll begin to express skepticism about the importance of fellowship with other believers. They'll make judgments about the value and even the validity of the church. And then they'll finally drop out altogether. And by the way, this also points to the fundamental values that should go into choosing a church for yourself and your family. You should attend a church that has a high view of Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God and the only Savior and a high view of the Bible as the inspired and authoritative Word of God. See, what ultimately makes a church uh, Christian is not its name, 
It's not its denomination, it's not its style, its constitution and bylaws, or even its level of outreach and influence. What makes a church Christian is the way that it views Jesus Christ, the way that it views the Bible, the way that it treats the gospel message of salvation by grace alone through personal faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, before moving on to John's third emphasis in this passage, I don't want you to miss John's central concern about these people that he calls antichrists. Their claim had to do with the very nature of who Jesus really is. Specifically, they denied that Jesus is the Christ. More specifically, they denied that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. In other words, they deny the doctrine of the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus. In his second letter, John wrote, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. First John 2, 22 to 23, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Around the time that John wrote this letter, a heresy was taking root that claimed, among other things, that Jesus was born and died as a mere man. And the proponents of this heresy regarded the Christ as distinct from Jesus, a, a spirit being that, that emanated from God. And they taught that this spirit being, which they called the Christ, came upon Jesus of Nazareth at his baptism, that it remained upon him throughout his life, throughout his earthly ministry. But then that spirit being that they called the Christ departed from Jesus just before he went to the cross. But Jesus, the man himself, was neither the Christ nor the Son of God. That's what they taught. By the way, this is the essential teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses today. They reject the biblical teaching of the triune God. They believe that Jesus, rather than being eternal God, is a created being. He was created before the physical world came into being. His first career, his first gig, if you will, his first identity was as Michael the archangel. They teach that Jesus is a God, little g, but not the big G God. They believe that when Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph, he was a mere human being and not God in human flesh. They also believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but only spiritually and not physically. So what are they left with? No Savior. No Savior. Only the requirement to earn their salvation by following the example of Jesus, by joining the Jehovah's Witnesses and obeying its rules. By John's definition, they are deceivers and antichrists. The heretical doctrines that John was combating is also reflected in our time by Mormonism. What do the Mormons believe about Jesus? They believe that Jesus 
is the literal physical son of the father in the same way that I am my dad's son and each of you is the offspring of your biological father. Jesus' father was a human being named Elohim who evolved to Godhood. Jesus was born a spirit child to Elohim and his wife as the result of a physical sexual act in the pre-existence. His brother's name is Lucifer. He is not equal with the father, but before coming to earth, he, Jesus evolved into godhood. Mormons regard Jesus primarily as an example for Mormons to follow to prove their worthiness and earn perfection. They teach that Jesus atoned for their sin, and they'll use that word, but only in the sense of kind of refinancing the debt, if you will. Mormons are not set free from the debt of their sin by the death of Jesus. They still have to pay back their debt to Jesus now through good works. So what are the Mormons left with? Again, no Savior. Only the requirement to earn their own salvation through joining the Mormon church, following its rituals, and obeying its rules. The Mormon church is not the church. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but they are not the church of the historical and biblical Jesus Christ, but the church of a very different Jesus, one who cannot save you from your sins, one who cannot reconcile you to God. The Mormon church is anti-Christ. Contrast that teaching with biblical and historical Christian faith, which which affirms that Jesus is eternally the Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that by virtue of his incarnation, he is fully God and fully man, and that he is the Lord and the only Savior. Now, why is all of that so important? Here it is, because if Jesus Christ were only God, he would have been unable to die in the place as the representative of sinful humanity, as our substitute, and pay the terrible price of our salvation. If he were only man, the death that he died would have had no eternal benefit whatsoever for those who look to him for salvation. After all, who would? But because he died as the incarnate Son of God, offering the perfect sacrifice for sin because he was raised to life forever, defeating the power of sin and death. He alone uniquely possesses the authority to grant forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all who believe in him. See, if Jesus is anything less than fully God and fully man, he might serve as a good example, but he can never be our Savior. The doctrine of the incarnation of God and the person of Jesus of Nazareth is the essential bedrock of our eternal salvation. If you deny the fundamental identity of Jesus Christ as it's revealed in the Bible, you thereby disconnect yourself from God the Father. That's what John is telling us. So the question of Jesus to his disciples, who do you say that I am, kind of echoes down to us, doesn't it? Down through the ages. So let me ask you this morning, what is your answer? Who do you say Jesus is? Third, John wants his readers to know the truth, to know the truth. 
verses 20 to 21, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So here in verses 20 to 21, John points to two pieces of basic equipment every Christian possesses to overcome spiritual deception. The first is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the second is the knowledge that comes to us from the Bible, the Word of God. In John 14, 16 to 17, Jesus said to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So Jesus introduces for the first time, Jesus at his first introduction of of the promise of the Holy Spirit, he speaks of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And he uses that same title again in chapter 15, verse 26. And then in chapter 16, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. See, the Bible teaches that Every believer, at the moment we believe and are saved, receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is also referred to in the New Testament as an anointing, as with oil, which is what John is affirming here. Even in the Old Testament, when, when the oil of anointing was placed on the head of a, a king or some other leader, a prophet, that oil represented the presence and the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And the specific result of the anointing that John is asserting here is knowledge. Knowledge, by which he seems to mean a spirit-enabled capacity to discern truth from error, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Notice he says you all have knowledge. He doesn't say that, that, that they all know everything there is to know. What all of us who have come to an authentic faith in Christ know is the foundational saving truth of the gospel. In verse 21, he affirms that they know the truth. Not only do they know the truth, but they know the character of truth, that no lie comes from it, so that genuine believers are able to discern lies. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And John In verses 24 to 27, John points to two guardrails then against the influence that false teachers may have on your spiritual stability. And the first one is in verses 24 to 26, which is the guardrail of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Notice verse 24 then, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the simple gospel, what Jude called the the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
the truth about God's perfect love for you, the truth that he sent Jesus to solve the predicament of your sin and separation from God, the, the truth about Jesus and his, his incarnation, his miracles, his teaching, the cross, the empty tomb, the truth about his resurrection and glorification, the truth that because you have believed the message and you've trusted in him, your sins are forgiven and, and you have received the gift of eternal life, the truth that he's coming again to take his church home to the place that he's prepared for us. So the key then to persevering in the faith, not falling prey to spiritual deception over the long haul, John is saying, is to allow the message of the gospel to live in you, to take up residence in you, to occupy every room in your heart, to rearrange the furniture, to decorate the walls. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, John continues in verse 25, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So how do you do that? How do you abide in what you heard and believed from the beginning of your relationship with God? When all around you there are people and there are influences who, whose intent is to deceive you, to discourage you, to wear you down, to get you to question your faith and your convictions. Here's how. By spending time in God's word on a daily basis. By deciding that you're going to be here on Sunday mornings to listen to the word being taught and sung and making sure that your children and your grandchildren are being given a solid foundation for a lifetime of following Jesus. By being in a small group, like a life group that opens the Bible together, that studies it, that discusses its meaning for our lives. And I want to encourage you to, to engage a daily, daily Bible reading plan. There's all kinds of them out there. You can find them all over the Internet. In the back of uh, the Bibles that we provide here at LifePoint is a, a Bible reading plan that over a period of a year or two, Maybe you'll enroll in a program that leads you into deeper study of the Bible. See, there's, there's nothing that will enable you to discern truth from falsehood more effectively than a steady exposure to the heart and the mind and the will of God. At first glance, it, it may sound as if it's somehow up to us to keep hold of our salvation by, by staying true to sound doctrine and thereby achieving eternal life. That, Sound doctrine will never save you. Only Jesus can save you. Sound doctrine will lead you to Jesus. But the second guardrail quickly rules that out. The second guardrail is to draw on the enablement of the Holy Spirit to abide in Christ. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The anointing of the Holy Spirit abides in you, John says, hangs out, lingers, remains present. Notice the, the dynamic interplay between the various senses of abiding here. In verse 24, John says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, so that you too will abide in the Son 
and in the Father. And then here in verse 27, he says, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, which enables genuine believers to abide in him. The word and the spirit. John says quite clearly that because of the anointing of the spirit, you have no need that anyone should teach you. What does he mean? It wouldn't be difficult to exaggerate this statement in a careless manner and Many have done so. It's absolutely true that the Holy Spirit is our ultimate teacher. It's the Spirit who illuminates the Word of God so that we can understand it. But don't miss the fact that as John is writing, he's teaching them. They still have teachers. The teaching ministry of the church is elevated in the New Testament. What I believe John is saying here is that the the revelation of God's Word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit and through which the Holy Spirit speaks to us is fully adequate. It's fully adequate. We don't need someone peddling another revelation. We don't need someone giving us another book that kind of stands in judgment on the Bible so that we come to believe that we need that other book in order to understand what God is really trying to say to us. In verse 24, John's emphasis is on what we have heard, which is the gospel, God's word to us. In verse 27, the emphasis is on what we received, which is the anointing of the Spirit. We might say that the word is is an objective guardrail. The anointing is a subjective one. But both are necessary to the goal of resisting deception and abiding in Christ. You know, there are some who honor the word of God and neglect the Spirit of God who alone can enable us to understand the word. Some honor the Spirit of God and neglect the Word of God out of which the Spirit teaches. So the only means of resisting and overcoming the influences of those who are constantly, in a thousand different ways, trying to deceive us is to embrace both the Word and the Spirit, to have abiding within us both the Word that we heard from the beginning and the anointing that we received from Him. As I was preparing this message, an old hymn I've told you many times that as I as I prepare messages, sometimes one particular song will just start ringing in my head. And this time it was an old hymn from my childhood. And it's titled, I Love to Tell the Story. Sing it in Sunday school when I was a kid. It goes like this, I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. It's pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story, my favorite verse. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I want to close with a quote from Charles Swindoll in his commentary on 1 John. He writes, Stay focused on Christ. We're called to be followers of one shepherd, disciples of one master, servants of one Lord. 
Let your mind like a laser be pointed wholly and solely on Christ as Savior. Examine his life, obey his teachings, follow his examples, meditate on his person and work, and proclaim him far and wide. Yes, antichrists will try to convince you that a focus on Jesus is far too narrow. They'll try to distract you from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Don't let them. Remind yourself every day that Jesus is the center. Do these things not in your own power, but always dependent on the Holy Spirit, and then you'll be able to triumph over false teachers. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us your Son, Christ, as our Savior, the eternal Son of God who became flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and who died, died our death to pay the debt we couldn't pay, was buried and then rose again the third day as he had promised, as you promised, Father, in your word, and then ascended back to your right hand. And Lord, we know that, that even now he is preparing a place for us and that he'll come again because he promised he would. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit of God that enables us to live the lives you've called us to live, to understand the things you said to us. Lord, help us to abide, to allow the word to abide in us, to allow the spirit to abide in us so that we might abide in you. We pray it in the name of your son Christ. Amen.